You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. These are words from my colleague, the Reverend Erica Hewitt. The word courage comes from the Latin cor, which means heart. According to poet Mark Nepo, the original use of the word courage meant to stand by one's core, a striking concept that reinforces the belief found in almost all traditions that living from the center is what enables us to face whatever life has to offer. To encourage means to hearten, to impart strength and confidence. This is our work as a religious community, to encourage one another, to be bold in engaging the world around us, as well as engaging what scares us internally, to give confidence, to give one another the confidence and heart to live as fully as possible. With full hearts this morning, we affirm our relationships with one another. We recognize the agency and our connective power, and we accept our responsibility to be bold and courageous together. Come, let us worship together. I have a uh, confession to make, which is that I was not expecting my heart to feel so full being here with you all this morning. So let's take a breath together. <laughs> One of the first times that I was invited to really pay attention to breath was in my training as a spiritual director. As part of my course of study, I needed to have a certain number of hours uh, with clients, and those hours needed to be supervised, which meant that soon after every spiritual direction session, I would have an hour-long supervision meeting in which I'd review the session and my practice as a spiritual director. Sounds easy, right? I sat, I listened, they talked about this, I asked them about that. It was great! In fact, it was a little harder than that. The program I was in believed in what I've come to see as full body listening. They were teaching me to not just attend to the person I was accompanying on their spiritual journey, but also to the things that were stirred up and awakened in me as a result, which often meant that my supervisor would ask me some pretty tough questions. And I'll never forget the first time that she did so. I don't recall quite what the question was. That's how floored I was. But in response to her question, I took a deep and audible breath, like we just did. One of those where you go, good breath, she said in reply. Good breath. And I laughed because I had never heard anyone say that before. 
And in response, she said, that seemed funny to you, didn't it? Why? I told her that I just never thought about the breath as being good. And then she said something like this. She said, Arif, when people come to see us, sometimes we'll ask them questions that hit them a certain way. Maybe they make them sad. Maybe they make them angry. Maybe they make them all kinds of things. But often, when someone is struck by a question that means something, they'll tell you, not with words, but by taking a deep breath like you just did. I say good breath when that happens because I want you to know that your breath is safe here and that breathing and sitting in that breath is a good place to be. I would go on to take many more deep, audible, good breaths in her presence and in that relationship. And I think that's the kind of presence in relationship that Naira Wahid is pointing toward. She invites us to ask, how is your heart? Is your breath happy here? Do you feel free? I invite you to notice your breath as I ask these questions again. How is your heart? Is your breath happy here? Do you feel free? Good breath. In so many ways, this practice and these questions capture the essence of hospitality. Now, I'm a bit of a word nerd, and sometimes following a word leads you to some interesting places. In this case, hospitality shares space with words like hospital, a place where we go to be cared for when we're sick or we're injured, or with hospice, a place where care is provided to one who is dying. If we go back further, we find that hospitality is rooted in the word host, which refers to an army, but also to a person who receives guests as well as the guest or the visitor themselves. There's a dual meaning here that points toward the relationship that's inherent in hospitality and the mutuality that many of us feel when we've experienced someone's hospitality. That, that calling, that desire to return that hospitality when we're able. In other words, it points us toward that innate yearning for expressing our deep interconnection. And of course, host also points us toward the bread consecrated in the Eucharist and the sacred sharing of the communion meal. So hospitality is in some very deep ways about our bodies, about caring for our bodies and other bodies, about caring for the heart and the breath that is the essence of our lives. Noticing our breath and the breath of others, noticing what's being offered, noticing what's being shared, Noticing that the practice of hospitality is in some way an invitation into communion with something larger than ourselves. 
Hospitality was a lot of what Reverend Elaine and I talked about as this transition between she and I drew near. And I want you to know just how generous and supportive and just plain amazing Reverend Elaine and everyone else has been in preparing for this transition. And how that's meant that this transition between her and I has felt smooth and easy in a way that I have never experienced before and for which I am profoundly grateful. In an important way, through our transition conversations, I think we were able to embody the spirit of hospitality and respect that so much of this role is about. In other words, Reverend Elaine was bringing me into this role, not just through her words or the many binders and lists that she left for me, and believe me, there are a lot, but also and perhaps most importantly, through her being and how she invited me to be with her. My heart has been full. My breath has been happy. I have felt free as I met with her and prepared to start in this position, to start in this ministry with you all. And in those conversations, we also talked about how challenging and how complex hospitality can be. Let me share a story with you. When I was probably about seven years old, visiting India with my family, we visited friends, we visited family, and every time we went somewhere, we were offered tea and sometimes snacks. Now, I don't know if you've ever had Indian tea, masala chai, but it is an institution in its own right always with milk and sugar, often with ginger and cardamom. It is warming and comforting, and for me at least, it is this richly textured ritual of aroma and flavor that feels like home. But that's not the memory of hospitality that really stands out for me. You see, my parents were activists. They met through student protests, and after immigrating to the United States, they continued their work to support grassroots empowerment programs in India. And on this particular trip, we had traveled out to a rural area to visit one of the projects that they'd supported. I think it was a microcredit project aimed at empowering women in rural India to improve outcomes for women and for children. And so I found myself with my parents and my uncle Anil sitting on the dirt floor of a small schoolhouse in a small village being served lunch. There was tea. There were some rotis, flat bread like naan, and a vegetable dish. And I loved Indian food. I didn't have any problem eating with my hands or eating spicy food, but this was different. This was not food that I was used to. The rotis were made of a coarse and to me strange tasting flour. They were hard and crumbly and to my seven-year-old palate pretty unpleasant. Equally unpleasant was the vegetable we were served, which I couldn't identify and had never had. Prior to lunch, while walking to the schoolhouse, my mom had tried to prepare me for this unfamiliarity, whispering to me the way your parents will when they don't want you to embarrass them, <laughs> telling me that these villagers were very poor, that I should eat what was offered and not make a fuss. How we give and receive hospitality is really important in Indian culture. But even my mom's warnings hadn't prepared me for what I was experiencing. And so sitting there, 
watching my parents and uncle eat, seemingly enjoying their meal, surrounded by school kids and people from the village watching us, I recall suddenly getting it. These folks had offered us all that they had, had given us the very best they had to offer, and there I was. And I had a choice. And I wish I could say that I dove into my plate with gusto, that I acted as if I enjoyed every bite like my parents and uncle were, but I couldn't quite do that. I did, however, stop making faces and pushing food around my plate. I ate what I was served, and I did my best to enjoy it. Hospitality can be complicated. We want to offer our best, be our most welcoming. And as guests, we want to meet the hospitality that we're offered with grace and with gratitude. And yet sometimes, on both sides, there's potential for missing. For missing what's being offered. For causing harm. I wonder, have you had experiences like this? Times when you've been greeted with hospitality that you didn't quite know how to receive? Or greeted in a way that felt anything but hospitable? For example, what is true is that Unitarian Universalism, maybe even this church sometimes, has not been and is not always a place of welcome for everyone. Sometimes we miss. What I'm speaking about here is that particularly if you're a person of color or otherwise live within a marginalized identity, our faith tradition is not always happy breaths and full hearts. Now, I'm not saying anything that most of you don't already know when I say that being a person of color in Unitarian Universalism can be a complicated endeavor. Not long ago, I was preaching at a UU church, not this one, and after the service in the social hall, a member came up to me and said, where were you born? Where were you born? I must have responded with a quizzical look because she followed up, doubled down really, and said, you have such good English. I'm just wondering where you're from. Good breath, y'all. <laughs> I kind of did the same thing. In that moment, I was what you all just did, actually. That's what I was. I was taken aback. I was surprised. I was hurt. My breath most certainly did not feel free. This was hospitality that was shrouded in assumptions about who I was and where I belonged. I remember disengaging as gracefully as I could. And I wish I could say it was an isolated incident, but it wasn't, it isn't. These are the kinds of things that people of color and indigenous folk experience in this faith tradition and in our churches whether it's being complimented on our English, swarmed as visitors every time we enter the building, or greeted as new even if we've been attending for decades. And friends, this is where stuff gets complicated for me. I want to meet and greet each offer of hospitality as a generous invitation into connection and relationship. 
As Danusha Lamaris says, mostly we don't want to harm each other. And I believe that, I really do. I really believe that our awareness of our deep interconnection and interdependence calls us to reach out for connection and for relationship. That our offerings are heartfelt gifts and really are meant as small kindnesses. And yet sometimes we miss, I sure know that I do, offering a helpful suggestion when it wasn't requested, missing a bid for connection because I'm caught up in my own world, using the wrong pronoun. We all miss at times. But what I'm driving at here as it concerns people of color and indigenous folk is a little different. What troubled me about the way that I was met, what troubles me about the way that we are sometimes met, isn't actually that we are seen as people of color or indigenous people. To be honest, I want you to see my brownness and not pretend that it doesn't exist. What's troubling is when one aspect of my identity is treated as all of my identity obscuring the fact that yes, I'm a person of color, but I'm also a Unitarian Universalist. I'm also a candidate for ministry. I'm also a parent in a multiracial relationship, raising multiracial children. What's troubling is when that difference is noted as an aberration and as a boundary of what is and isn't normal. How's your breath doing? Which is to say that this stuff is complicated. I'm a person of color and I'm a Unitarian Universalist. I'd like to be both, and in fact, far more than both. I'd like to be all of who I am. I suspect that that's true for a lot of you, for a lot of us. But we're not always practiced in this. And so we miss sometimes, inevitably, sometimes spectacularly, we will miss. And I think the roadmap for what we do when we miss lies in those first lines of that Nayira Wahid reading. I've been focusing on the latter lines, the questions about breath and about heart. But in those first lines, she says, things that should be asked often in every relationship. And let's face it, it's pretty easy to turn to someone when things are good and ask, how's your heart? Is your breath happy here? Do you feel free? <laughs> Pretty easy when things are good. But I'm starting to think that maybe these questions are even more important when things aren't so easy. When I've missed in my attempt to connect, when I've really stepped in it. Maybe that's the time I need to turn to the person I'm pretty sure that I've hurt or offended and see if they're open to repairing our relationship. Maybe that's when I most need to ask, how is your heart? And listen patiently for the answer. Maybe that's when I most need to ask, is your breath happy? And listen for the ways that it isn't. Maybe that's when I most need to ask, do you feel free? and hear the ways in which the answer is no. If that sounds scary, and perhaps even a little terrifying, well, the good news is that it is. 
And the good news is also that I think this is what our Unitarian Universalist principles point us toward. This is what improv theology points us toward, that adjusting and tweaking and playing in real time to offer real hospitality, real welcome. This is the work of practicing day after day what it means to be more human in a world that would have us forget our fundamental inclination toward each other. And we are doing so many things this year that invite us into this practice of hospitality, of welcome and of invitation into relationship and repair when we miss, and we will miss. Whether it's the prospect of sharing this building with Shirtikva, deepening in our racial justice work, putting our bodies on the line for immigrants in our communities, teaching in religious education, showing up on a Sunday as an usher or a greeter, this is a year rich in opportunities for practice. If hospitality is rooted in our bodies, in noticing the breath and what is being shared and received, in attending to our hearts and the hearts of those we are with, how might we practice this together? What are the small kindnesses we can offer? What is the grace we might extend to each other when we miss? I hope you'll join me in this practice, in asking these questions, in embracing with gratitude the small kindnesses that we give and we receive. Attend to our breath, attend to our hearts, and ask often in every type of relationship, how is your heart? Is your breath happy here? Do you feel free? May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.